You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Andy Hargraves. Andy's Director of Chenine, Change, Engagement, and Innovation in Education at the University of Ottawa. He's Emeritus Professor at Boston College, Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and a member of the National Academy of Education. Andy's former president of the International Congress of School Effectiveness and Improvement, former advisor in education to the Premier of Ontario, and current advisor to the First Minister of Scotland. He's published more than 30 books and has eight outstanding writing awards. His most recent books are Wellbeing in Schools with Dennis Shirley, Five Paths of Student Engagement with Dennis Shirley, and Moving, a Memoir of Education and Social Mobility. Welcome, Andy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Let's start the conversation and talking with you is really interesting because we know each other and and your body of work is so huge. It's hard to know where to start in lots of ways. But I was thinking that you do work all over the world in education with a range of stakeholders and at a range of levels. And so I think you've got a pretty unique viewpoint of what's happening and where people are at. And I was wondering what you're seeing or hearing at the moment that worries you or keeps you up at night and what you're seeing or hearing that's really uplifting and maybe exciting in education. Thanks, Deborah. The the uplifting thing is just having the opportunity to reconnect with schools in person, actually, now, and reconnect with people, with educators in person. In two weeks, uh, we have a project with 40 schools with the Lego Foundation. I'll be going out to look at, to visit a bunch of those in Nova Scotia, which is out on our East Coast, and I'm really excited about that. I mean, I enjoy all this uh, virtual work, all this Zoom work. Uh, it has a lot of satisfactions, but it misses a lot of things. It misses the emotional aspect, I think, of the work that we do, which is actually something I've researched a lot, but is also, I think, pedagogically important for every educator. So being back in touch is important. A lot of us are thinking now we're through this pandemic, there'll probably be more. What does that mean? And how do we make sense with others of how we're coping with it? So I think like a lot of other people, what's on my radar are things like um, mental health and how we help our young people and our educators, our adults with mental health. That's where the wellbeing book is in part. We're thinking a lot about assessment. You know, when kids didn't have two years of exams or two years of tests, uh, they learned, we learned what it was like without those. Nobody missed them. I mean, people miss the graduation. People miss going away to university or, or college or what have you. Uh, but no, nobody whined about not having any tests or not having any exams anymore. So a lot of countries are, not Australia yet, but a lot of countries are thinking about uh, completely redoing their particularly high school assessment systems, but also their testing processes elsewhere. I've just completed a review with the OECD for Ireland, where we managed to persuade them to lower the final exam requirement which is a sit-down exam, 
uh, from 100% of what determines your future to 60% of what determines your future. So, so there's, there's a lot concerned with that. And there's a lot concerned with uh, technology and with, the, and with the future of teaching. They're connected, unfortunately. We've been here in Ottawa, a group of us, thinking about not more technology or less technology, but ethical technology, where it adds value, where it doesn't add value, where it's a distraction, where it's actually a disruption in a bad way rather than a good way. And the arguments about how we renew the teaching profession. A lot of people are looking for simple solutions like more digital, lower the qualifications. Uh, you're getting those in Australia, but they're happening in other parts of the world. So they usually come from business people, not not from professionals, or they come from governments. And uh, so I think lots of us are getting engaged with that with that issue as well. So if we stick for a moment with the uplifting stuff, and I, I'm wondering a little bit how the is it Play the Lego Foundation project. Is there a link between that and some of the work you're seeing with assessment, the work that you're doing with Lego Foundation and University of Ottawa? Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're doing when you go into schools and what you're seeing, what what people are trying in that project? Yeah, sure. This this project that came up because of a relationship with, with the Lego Foundation that went over many, many months. And uh, I approached them in the first instance to do a tiny, tiny project on, frankly, which is better, green or machine, green or screen. We'd had a report on that in Canada by Nature Canada, so you can guess what their answer was. Um, we wanted to ask, ask that as more of an open question. Uh, they, they were more interested in uh, building a network of playful schools. In the end, we proposed, uh, after a lot of discussion, uh, looking at play-based learning, which, which does not mean trivial, superficial, or elite learning for underserved populations, uh, we pretty much know these uh, populations, uh, indigenous, immigrant, um, second language, uh, poor rural, poor urban. And we deliberately wanted, in response to your question, we, we deliberately wanted to focus on uh, year four and above or grade four and above. So that's nine-year-olds to 13-year-olds. And the reason for that is we, most of the stuff on play is in early childhood for very understandable reasons. And we wanted to work with educators, not not talk down to them or preach to them, because actually we don't have the answers on um, how, when the kids get older, you deal with the uh, three things, how you deal with there's more testing. Uh, so you got to sit down more, you got to revise more, you got to prepare. So what impact does that have on a play agenda? Uh, there's more content. So teachers start trying to, charge through the content that they're supposed to charge through. And the kids get bigger. So, you know, we're usually happier as educators when the kids are small than we let them play than, than when they get bigger and walk around a lot and we <laughs> make more noise and we let them and we let them play. So we wanted to figure that out with it with educators, which is uh, what we're just starting to do to do now. And we wanted to do that not just with a uh, a boutique school here or there, but with a large number of schools and uh, try and figure out how to combine a particular architecture for creating a network uh, with its connections to policy. So the deputy minister of almost all our provinces is connected with the project, not to control it or not to regulate it, uh, but actually to learn from it with the possibility 
uh, that that might then spread out into other schools that they work with within their provinces. And um, luckily, we've got a really fantastic group of people, uh, the like of which I've almost never met before on this uh, on this team. And when you say which is better, green or screen or machine, uh, what are you looking for? What does it mean for it to be better? Is it, I know your two recent books, two of them are about engagement and wellbeing. Is it those kind of things? Is it learning? What is it that you're looking for in terms of what the outcomes might be? I mean, that's a good question. So the, we're actually looking at, at four modalities of uh, play, uh, a green screen machine and everything in between. And there's a song in there somewhere. Uh, but the everything in between that, you know, there's a lot to do with language because we're a bilingual country. So we have uh, people in our group who think a lot about language issues and language and play. And, um, uh, but, but also math, numeracy, and, you know, where that, where that fits in as well. Uh, but what all those four are connected to underneath are engagement and well-being. So if you like, the, the two ultimate things we're looking for are not raises in achievement scores, uh, but, but improvements in learning, uh, however you judge that, and, and improvements in well-being. We, we, can't, we can't rate every school on some standardised instrument with each other. We've, we've got some schools wanting to go to museums a bit more and do their own videographies. We had a school yesterday in the Arctic. We're trying to figure out with them how to get a 3D printer so that they can filter water for their community and develop water filters in the high Arctic uh, without spending a thousand dollars on a on a on a plane fare just to get the printer up there, so so we're yeah, they are like totally uh, widely variable in their projects, and of course most of these schools aren't doing one thing; they're not a blind control study. So we have overlaps between you know big overlaps between between green and screen people doing things outdoors, uh, but they're also posting their results on uh, global websites using uh, drones or other technology to look at and examine what it is they're doing and so on. So we're examining the intersections of these things and and not just uh, the comparisons between them. And your recent book, Wellbeing in Schools, that you wrote with Dennis Shirley, was there anything as you were writing that book that surprised you or changed your mind or brought your attention to something you hadn't thought previously around wellbeing? Uh, The first thing is everything surprised us because uh, we work collaboratively with schools and with school districts, broadly around the agenda of improvement, change, and innovation uh, and inclusion. Um, so, and and we follow them. Uh, so, we uh, the the disadvantage is people look at my books or Dennis's and think, well, what's he on about now? You know, and what 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 on earth has that got to do with anything that that went before? And the truth is, when we worked on engagement in the Pacific Northwest with five states and more than 30 schools, uh, the only non-negotiable with a federal grant that they got was to improve achievement for uh, poor students in isolated rural communities of many different kinds. 
uh, indigenous, white working class, Mexican migrant farm laborers, and so on. And they chose engagement. By the way, some of them were Trump supporters. And I'm not just talking about the families. I'm talking about the teachers. I'm talking about the principals. So one message I have for my colleagues is don't always work with teachers and schools who ideologically agree with you on everything. But, you know, work on that edge where there are things we might differ about in life, you know, big government, small government. But we're going to focus here on the, on the kids and learning in, in school. And uh, they cared a lot about student engagement too. Oh, we have an enormous privilege, which is with professors, and we're paid to read stuff. Uh, I can't think of, like, apart from librarians, like any other job where you get paid to do that. So uh, we look at what they're doing. We facilitate discussions. We go off and read everything there is and we find the psychological stuff's not enough so then we dig out and find some sociological philosophical stuff which is more our training and uh up pops loads of stuff on engagement we never knew before or we're not even particularly interested in uh before and the same is true for well-being so we worked on um with 10 districts in ontario on their initially in our first phase of work on their inclusion strategy so i learned all kinds of things about inclusion i never knew before even though i'm uh, adhd and was going through a bit of a crisis with that at the time so it really helped me with my adhd to be absolutely honest and in the second phase of work i was at the same time as doing the work also one of four and then six advisors to the premier kathleen Wynne, who was a a lesbian feminist who did um, Indigenous studies uh, in her master's degree uh, really set uh, new priorities, two of which were equity related to inclusion and identity. So equity was really about could you see yourself in your school, which is why the next book I'm writing with Dennis is on uh, is on identity. Uh, so again, we're, we're following what's in the schools and then well-being. So she was really concerned about bullying in schools and marginalization and what, what schools could do about that. So I would, frankly, the whole field of well-being is completely new. So off we go. We read like the dominant stuff that's out there, social and emotional learning. Um, Maslow's needs hierarchy, Shima highly on, on flow, Carol Dweck on growth mindsets and so on. And then again, probably because of our sociological training, we, we find it's probably not enough. It's not enough to ask schools to offset the things that are making kids sick and the adults sick. But actually, if you read around a bit wider, you find out what's making everybody sick. And, and then with your educators, you start to ask the question, what can we do to empower and include young people so that they feel they have some voice and agency in, in the things that are affecting them? And I'd, I'd say all, all of it, to be honest, like, like all of it's new because we didn't pick this. And, uh, um, and we had to go and read loads of stuff like play. Um, and I've never really thought all that hard about play. Like, I like play. Um, you know, I'm not against it. Uh, but but this has come up because of our relationship with Lego. So um, I, I'm learning a lot about play that, that, um, that I'd never thought about before. So then you are following the people that you're engaging with in the practice space. Yeah. You're an expert in lots of fields, yeah. and yet you're writing on things that are new to you. Um, you know, I'm 71, so that is a fantastic place to be. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of professors who have had one idea all their life, 
Uh, and I'm not against that. You know, like, like relentlessly, they, they followed it and produced something better. The discovery of insulin happened after years and years and years of dead dogs, uh, basically, with pancreases that they couldn't remove properly. So pursuing one thing with relentless obsession for the better good of society is not a bad thing. But what I find is um, unexpectedly helpful for me as a person is at least a couple of things. One is keep walking and uh, discover places you've never been to before and find out what's around the next corner and how it might surprise or challenge you. And keep reading and keep learning. Keeps you excited, but it also keeps you humble. If you go into a new field and you're flailing around for a while, it reminds you, you actually don't, you know, you know a lot, like I know quite a lot, but, but you don't know everything. And, um, and it's great to try to get to grips with that. If I just think about some of the sort of moments or publications maybe in your career, I'm thinking you and Dennis did the Global Fourth Way at one point. You and Michael Fullan did the work on professional capital. You and Michael O'Connor did the work on collaborative professionalism. And now even when you're talking about the work with the Playful Schools Network and the student engagement work and with your memoir on social mobility, there's that inclusion and social equity sort of a yeah. piece as you look back at those kind of touchstones, maybe you have more idea than me about what those are for yourself. Are there anchors or through lines for you? Or is it that you've just grown over time and, and been taken in different directions, depending on what's happening in the education system at, at any given time? Or am I really all over the place? Yeah. So I would say in my 30s, it was a problem for older colleagues that, that my work didn't seem to have any unity to it or a single direction you're supposed to have in order to get tenure and promotion these days you know a single narrative follow it through make sure everything's connected to that but we're not all like that i'd say if i can remember them i'd say there are five things one is i do work a lot with with practitioners whether i just kind of watch them and write about them which i think i did earlier in career and now now more actively I work with them uh, at all levels, including including ministers. So, you know, I see part of my job is trying to understand the, the world of ministers and deputy ministers and, and trying to help them change things for the better, including ones they've not thought of yet. So, so I, I think uh, that, uh, that is a unitary that like respecting uh, the profession and working with it and, and not on it, but not being afraid to say challenging things as you work with it. I think equity and inclusion, you've you know, you've read my memoir going up, a uh, white working class, uh, northern English home, uh, surrounded by poverty and also by racism, and trying to figure your way through those things over time without falling on one side or, or the other. So I've always cared about equity. I've always cared about inclusion. I went to school on one side of the town and I lived on the other. Teachers who didn't seem to be interested in the kind of life I had, which was a struggle for a few years. You know, my results went down, took me two goals to get into university because my dad died. My mum went on welfare. She had a breakdown. She had went to hospital several times. So like many kids today, uh, poor kids, you know, I found like I was in charge of the family, the family wasn't in charge of me. So 
you know, if ever I'm in need of another partner, sometimes I'm great at vacuuming. And then when I go to the shops, I can tell a good piece of meat from a bad, from a bad piece of meat. Uh, many years ago in an interview in Spain, I discovered that I've actually spent all my life trying to put together things that other people put apart. And, and I think that's where it comes from, which is uh, living in one world and trying to have to succeed in another. I still feel that in all kinds of ways, and it's a big driver for me. It's probably an outer healing as a way of doing an, an inner healing. And I think if you're aware of that, that's fine. You're driving it. It's not driving you. So I think that that's the third thing. The fourth is that really I, I'm very interested in, in connecting three things uh, always, which is what's your work like? How's your work connected to your life? And how are both of those connected to what's going on in the world around you? So I have deep, deep sociological training, you know, to help me think about those big questions. I'm not allied to one particular person or theory. I try to understand what needs to be understood for the thing that, that you're looking at. A part of my training, I also read quite a bit of social psychology. So I'm also, in, I'm also into the emotional, psychological, relational uh, aspects of, of people's lives. So I'm always trying to help people figure out how to do that. And I think fifth and last, it sounds like I prepared this, but I really didn't. <laughs> fifth and last is, you know, I've always been interested in change. I'm wanting to make the world a better place. And until I met Michael Fulham, I thought, I thought the way to do that was by just giving people a brilliant argument and the scales will fall from their eyes and they change for the better. And since I met Michael Fulham, when I came to Canada, I learned a lot about change as a process and not just change as a goal. I spent a lot of time figuring out for myself and with other people uh, what that requires and what that takes to make change in a school or in a group of schools or in a whole country or even across the world. So I spent a lot of time doing that globally. I've lived in three countries, which helps. So you, when you lived in three countries... If you live in one, you think it's the only way to be. If you live in two, there's a bad one and a good one. And if you live in three, then you you start to realize it's all imperfect. And there is a sixth thing, which is I owe a lot to all my years in Canada to the inclination that I've had, not just to theorize about bringing opposite things together, but actually to do the work with people to make that happen. Mm, so working with others, really respecting the teaching profession but also the context in which people operate and then there's this sort of undercurrent throughout it driven by your own personal experience around equity and inclusion and and serving the, un, the underserved yeah. perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And so the work you're doing with Dennis at the moment, the new yet-to-be-published or potentially completed book is around identity and the book that I edited, Future Alternatives for Educational Leadership, you wrote a great chapter there about identity and intersectionality and I've done work myself on professional identity in terms of how important it is for teachers' practices. But can you talk a little bit about where your thinking's at with that identity piece? Sure. Well, you know, identity is one of those hot-button issues that there is right now. Well, we've got culture wars, we've got accusations of, um, you know, wokeism everywhere. It is a big hot button issue. And, you know, De Dennis and I are two old white males. Well, elderly rather than old. I keep 
redefining what old is. And, um, you know, although we've uh, each struggled with different things in early parts of our lives, I mean, also undoubtedly, not only do we have uh, white privilege now, but we also have wealth privilege. So we did think at one point of a jokey title for this book, which probably wouldn't go down well, called Two Old White Men Write a Book About Identity. Um, <laughs> and which, you know, anybody <laughs> would, be, would be up in arms about. It'll fly off the shelves. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, possibly into the bin, but we'll see. But but the truth is, again, we didn't choose this. It chose us. It chose us. It was really one of three big things that, that were originally one book, uh, which were engagement, well-being, and identity out of this, like, 10 years of work or more that we've done together. Um, and then the book just got too big, so we, we broke it down into three and uh at various points we've perhaps dennis a bit more than me sort of shied away from it a bit and said who are we to write who are we to write this book and we still ask ourselves that question which is good i think to to do that but in the end we are who we are and i think although we do not share like all of us uh, exactly the same identity as some of the people we're trying to understand, empathize with, advocate for. There are two other ways you can come to, three ways you can come to that. One is through common values of identity inclusion. Two is through, if you've had some struggle in your life, don't spend all your life working with people who've had exactly the same struggle, but, but spend all your life finding common cause with other people who struggle. It's really trying to bring together what we call the white working class with with uh, groups who are disadvantaged, marginalized, oppressed in other ways, rather than uh, set them against each other, which the populists are doing rather well, uh, and liberals and Democrats and socialists aren't managing very well at all. So, so we're I'd frankly rather just talk about working class, not not just remove the word white, because working class has many colors now care home workers, migrant farm laborers, um, you know, you name them, working class as hospital cleaners, you know, look around you. So I, I, I think drawing on um, the concepts of struggle and your own struggles to empathize with others is helpful. And the third is empathy, literature and many other things we can do in schools that create empathy. Even if you come from a loving home that is full of privilege, but has the right values, shouldn't and doesn't mean that you can't, it's really, if you say you can't empathize with people unlike you, it's a failure of our belief in education and our belief in learning, including emotional learning. So we're about 80% done now and trying to figure out our way through this. And uh, it's been a big learning journey for us. We've read lots of things we've never read before, uh, including, you know, old old men's literature on identity, like uh, Erickson's uh, Stages of Identity, Margaret, and not just old men, Margaret Mead's Coming of Age in Samoa, which is all about identity development. And, and then loads of new stuff from Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality onwards. And we're trying to unite those as well sometimes struggle with graduate students, getting them to read anything before 1990, to understand that identity did exist before intersectionality, and then to bring those together rather than set them off set them off against each other. So that's what we've been trying to do. And what we hope comes out of it is uh, that 
educators in schools will find and be able to facilitate more constructive ways of talking about identity and inclusion than superficial celebrations of you know food and music and festivals and more than just avoiding the question altogether and running away from it wherever you can so the the outcome we're hoping to get is better deeper conversations about identity and inclusion that will benefit everyone and there is a discomfort in grappling with some of those things as well yeah for i'm not just talking about the book i'm talking about for educators to be to might find that quite confronting in their practice as well yeah we think we're closer now to finishing to be able to develop some tools to work through these things now we're back in the in-person world i really won't want to do this virtually uh, now we're back at, you can see people's eyeballs. And their legs. And, and their legs, everything, you know, see all of it. Um, we have legs, do we? So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think that exploring it with them, they're saying there are moments of discomfort, but they don't mind those if they've got somebody to help them through it and it's a safe space. And, you know, I have a colleague here, Phyllis Daly, who is French language educator, and her area of expertise is language confidence for, say, English people learning French. Um, and that you, you have to have an environment where it's okay to say the wrong thing if you say it in the right spirit. Because if you pick people up every time they say the wrong thing, they're just going to hide what they're doing. And I think the same is true, not just with literal differences in languages, but in talking about things like identity. That, you know, if somebody says, I don't know, if somebody says colored people rather than people of color, or says, you know, black rather than African Canadian, though black has come back again now, or uses the wrong pronoun or no pronoun at all that we need an environment of language confidence, which means it's okay to say the wrong thing if you say it in the right spirit. We've got big enough arguments with people who want to tear our world and our people apart without getting into big fights with each other if we're trying to head in the right direction. And that is just what the other side, creating culture wars, would love to bits for to happen among us. So... That's what, so we're really trying to make this book practical as well as theoretical. Mm. And I'm reflecting on what you said earlier around one of those pillars or foundation stones of your work as wanting to make a positive difference, which is probably why a lot of educators and a lot of researchers do the work that they do. And I'm wondering what you think about, uh, or how much, if, if at all, you think about influence or your influence. And I'm reflecting on the books, for instance, like you work with premiers and with ministers in the government, uh, you work with educators, uh, you write books. And, you know, I'm told often that books in the academy don't count. Luckily for me, I'm sort of outside the academy, so I... I'm not beholden to the metrics of any university. But do you think at all about the ways in which you are having that positive influence and and the different channels or people that you deal with? Our questions about legacy drive me crazy because it usually means people think you're going to die soon. 
But, I didn't say legacy. Uh, well, well, <laughs> I really Ongoing influence, Andy. I really don't plan to just yet. But uh, frankly, there aren't many people ahead of me. So governments work with you if you're any good because they've run out of other people to work with. So, you know, I can point to say, well, you know, I worked on an OECD committee and 100% of kids used to be 100% dependent on their final exam. And now they're not. They're not going to be. And that's a good thing. And I'm part of that, you know, so... I can do that. So that's okay. I can list a bunch of those and I can feel quite good about them. But then there's other things where you work with the government when the window's open and it's moving in a positive direction and you make some traction for three or four years and then the next government comes in and destroys it all. Many years ago in the 1990s, I worked on uh, in Ontario with uh, developing a new policy and strategy research base for early adolescents. Uh, which was actually quite a lot about well-being and identity and not not just achievement and so on. So there are some themes. And a a very distinguished colleague said to me, why are you doing all this? Because you know they're going to destroy it. And I said, well, you know, two reasons. One is it's important to push things as far as we can go before people start to pull back. That's the first thing. Second is even if it all falls apart, what they can't take away are people's memories and people's skills that they've learned. And they will go underground for a while, but as they grow, they'll take them into other schools. They'll take them into schools they lead. They'll take them into systems they lead. They'll survive, they'll endure, they'll carry on, they'll grow, not just in the way they've experienced them now, but they'll have a definite impact on them for for the rest of their lives. And that is what we are creating. And... You know, to go even deeper than that, in 2002, I was asked to go back to my old primary school and lay the foundation stone for the new building, which was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me in my professional life. And I said, I'd do it with my best teacher. So she came along as well. She was in her mid-80s. And that's fantastic. There's, there's a stone now. There's my stone, you know, when I go into the building. But eventually, in 50 years or 100 years, they'll knock down and that, that will be gone. It won't exist anymore. Very few of us read books of people who've been dead more than 10 years. I don't fool myself. I've got, I've got I think the most cited book on teaching by a living author, but eventually I won't be a living author. And then people will, after a few years and a bit of celebration, they'll move on to something else. So that won't survive. You know, let's not get carried away. People read John Dewey, but, you know, I'm pretty good, but I'm not John Dewey, basically. So what is it? And uh, in the last uh, three or four years, uh, I've been nominated for different awards here or there. I even got a couple of them, but most of them died like a dog. But, but, but what I learned about it was the people who write references for you. And I, I discovered through this that people in very high positions of influence now who don't have any time to read anything because they're in positions of high influence. So they only read like very short things. I said, when I was a lot younger, uh, I read this book, Changing Teachers, Changing Times in, in the 1990s. And it totally transformed my thinking about the teaching profession and about the importance of professional collaboration. And I'm talking about people in, you know, like senior civil servants, deputy ministers, people who are presidents of teachers' unions and so on. And they said, that has stayed with me for the rest of my life and my career and had a profound influence on what I think and how I lead. So often, you don't know, they don't know 
at the time they're reading your stuff or engaging with you. Things that influence me are often a sentence said to somebody that they thought nothing about and vice versa. But if it's got the right values and the right intent behind it, it'll stick with people. So, you know, my advice to anybody, I think, is anything you do say or write with everybody, no matter how apparently insignificant in status, is important. It's important as a piece of humanity, but it's also important because no one knows then what will become of it. That's what we're doing with kids, uh, because you Mm. know what's going to become of your kids either. I think teachers feel that that weight of responsibility of the throwaway line in a classroom can be the thing that the child remembers through their life. So in a way, never, uh, you know, particularly as you get older, never start thinking about your legacy as, you know, who you're going to pass the torch to or what public building will be named after you. In, in the end, that's the most important legacy of every teacher. Impact on young people. So, Andy, we're coming to the end of our time together and I'm going to move us to the final five questions, which I call the enlightening round. The first of which is, what is something, and having written a memoir, this might be difficult because <laughs> you've shared quite a bit about your life, but what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? I love to hike long-distance trails, uh, uh, although I think quite a lot of people know that, that about me now. So I've uh, walked the length of England and Scotland and Wales. Uh, I've walked half the Appalachian Trail. Uh, I can't imagine I'm still doing this, like carrying a backpack over the mountains 13 miles descending in darkness with a headlamp on. Um, um, and, and having pe- people who will go with me, um, uh, which is important because I broke my ankle four years ago. So it was very important. I had needed a mountain rescue and have people with me then. Um, I, you know, I could name you lots of other trails, but it, it's something I've done since uh, I did the first one when I was 17. I, uh, in a school where I thought I had no hobbies because they weren't like playing the violin or um, all the things you were supposed to do. Uh, I, I planned and executed a trip with my girlfriend who at the time, who was a year older. She was, she was 18, I was 17. And uh, off we went for two and a half weeks to walk 270 miles up the backbone of England. And uh, I've had an absolute passion for long distance hiking since then and even before then because when my dad died my eldest brother who's still alive uh, his way of replacing my dad with me was to take me on ridiculous epic long walks across the moors uh, without hiking boots only in my school shoes up to 30 miles a day soaking wet through and in a bizarre way I enjoyed this with him uh, and I'm still grateful for that. So it gets me out into my body. Um, it gets mm. me out of my head, into my body, mind-body, gives me time to think, connects me with other people, uh, usually with other men. Um, a lot of people say men don't know how to talk to each other, but I find we talk about everything. We um, not just about adventure or bears, but we talk about relationships, family, love, life, death. All, all of that. So I'd say that that's one thing people don't know about me. Mm. How about something that's currently on your desk? 
on my desk is a half-eaten banana because I couldn't have my <laughs> breakfast this morning before we have this uh, meeting. Apologies. Uh, a, a load of unsorted papers because I, uh, yellow paper with scrawled notes on them because I am uh, ADHD. So literally that's what's on my desk. Um, what's on my metaphorical desk is um, is I you know I think this project on play and the community that I'm doing it with. I think your next book might be the ADHD professor. Yeah, I'll never finish it. Following multiple <laughs> passions at once. Probably better as a set of blogs. <laughs> Probably. And who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? Uh, is that past tense or present tense? Either way, who has inspired you or does inspire you? Let's take present tense. Honestly, I, I really have to say now, it is these extraordinary people I work with at the University of, uh, of Ottawa, one of whom you've interviewed, who is Trista Holweck, who has you know, an, an engine that would beat out most cars in Formula One and a phenomenal way of working with and inspiring people in schools um, and, and the people in our team on the development side of the work. Uh, but also a, a group of uh, other uh, professors who are incredibly hardworking, very insightful from different disciplines and backgrounds, generous to one another. Perhaps the most collaborative group of academics I've ever worked with, all of them interested in working in and with schools. And, uh, well... Uh, before we started, I said when we moved to Ottawa in Canada four years ago, we moved for family reasons to be close to our three of our five grandchildren here. Uh, I knew almost no one. And I am grateful that, that in a way, I've helped bring them together. I got a bit of money from the university to enable me to do that. Not much. Uh, but they have become a community and a home, um, including an intellectual home for me too. So I, I'd say above everything, and especially during COVID, uh, mm. I'd say that. A home, somewhere to belong and intellectually and perhaps emotionally as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. What's one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? Uh, something I'm coming up that I'm uh, excited about. Well, it's uh, uh, the weekend is uh, <laughs> something that's immediately <laughs> coming up that I'm excited about. I'm uh, going uh, out for another uh, four days on the Appalachian Trail in a few days down in Virginia in the United States. And that's it, probably. And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I think a lot of academics and administrators think teachers don't have the time or the inclination to address the big questions in the world. One way I put it before is principals often get the big picture and academics work with principals to help them get the big picture teachers get the big binder to implement the big picture. And teachers are intellectuals, always, ineradicably intellectuals. 
and we need to respect that. And I think it's important in connecting their work with themselves to also do that with the world and to help them do that. Because remember, we're paid to read. Uh, so, so it's not just we're smarter, we just have, we have more time and more space and privilege, really, to, to do that. And so pedagogically, just as with a child, I think our job is, is to help them learn challenging things, to respect teachers as equals, not as people we give the big binder to, and respect how we work with them in doing that. That's probably what I would say. Thank you. And thank you so much, Andy, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.